Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya Namaskaram. Um, today I'm going to be talking about Anmabhite, which is, um, in some respects, it is the most important of all the short works of Bhagavan. It is a song of uh, with a Pallavi, Anupallavi, and five verses. But the the meaning of this song is extremely important, and Bhagavan um, Bhagavan teaches us a lot in these five verses. Um, the the path the path of self investigation that Bhagavan has taught us is the direct and easy means to eradicate ego, the root and foundation of all our troubles. But there is a widespread belief that it is a very difficult path and therefore suitable only for a few spiritually mature aspirants. Even among the devotees who lived with him, this was a widely held belief, as Murugana discovered to his surprise in the following way. One day, soon after he came to Bhagavan, Murugana was sitting in his presence, but after a while, Bhagavan went outside and while Murgana was waiting for him uh, to return, another devotee approached him and whispered in a secretive manner that Bhagavan is very great, but it is not possible to know anything from him directly. And he therefore offered to introduce him to Kabyaganta Ganapati Sastri, saying that if he were to take mantra diksha from him, he would thereby gain the clarity to understand Bhagavan's teachings. Seeing the surprise on Murugana's face, that devotee advised him to think about it, saying he would return later. And later that day, he again approached uh, Murugana and asked him what he had decided. But Murugana told him that he had come only for Bhagavan's grace. So whether he was fit to receive it or not, he was not interested in seeking anything from anyone else. Uh, telling this to Saduon many years later, Murugana said with a smile that Kavyaganta's followers must have decided that he was a hopeless case because they never again offered him such advice. He also said that this was one of the reasons why he decided a few years later to ask Bhagavan to write this song, Anma Bidei. That is, Murgana knew from his own experience how easy this practice of self-investigation is, but he also knew that many other devotees wrongly believed it to be very difficult. So he wanted Bhagavan to write a poem to dispel this mistaken belief and thereby reassure sincere aspirants. And hence, on the 24th of April 1927, he composed the Pallavi and Anupallavi uh, uh, for this kirtanam, and asked Bhagavan to compose the charanangal. Pallavi means uh, refrain, Anupallavi means the post-refrain or sub-refrain, um, but actually the Pallavi is repeated after every verse, but the, the Anupallavi isn't repeated. Um, and this is typical of this type of song called kirtanam, and then the verses are called charanangal, uh, charanams. Um, Knowing why Murugana made this request, Bhagavan immediately composed five charanangal to explain how easy this path is and why it is so necessary. <clears throat> a kirtanam is a musical composition consisting of Pallavi, Anupallavi, and one or more charanams. 
in which the Pallavi expresses the central theme of the song and is therefore repeated after the Anupallavi and each of the Charanams. This Ketana is composed in the style of a well-known and much-loved uh, Ketanam in Nandana Charitram, a Katakalakshetam, which is a type of musical storytelling that Gopala Krishna uh, Bharati, a popular 19th century Tamil poet and musician, composed on the life of Nandana, who was one of the most revered and loved of the 63 Tamil Shaivite saints, whose stories are narrated in the Pariya Puranam. Uh, Nandana was a pariah, the, an outcast or an untouchable, and in Gopala Krishnan's uh, version of the, his story, he worked as a bonded laborer for a for a cruel Brahmin landowner. So Gopala Krishna composed a Ketanam in which Nandana addressed his master and sings in the Pallavi, Aye Metakadinam, Uma Dadi Mei, Aye Metakadinam. That means, ah, or sir, very hard or difficult, being your slave, very hard. In which Aye can be taken either to be an exclamation, ah, or an address to his master, sir. Therefore, in the same meter, Murugana composed the Pallavi for this Ketanam, Aye Atisolapam, Anma Videi, Aye Atisolapam, which means, ah, extremely easy, Atma Vidya, ah, extremely easy. Um, Unfortunately, in talks with Sri Ramana Maharshi in section 379, it is incorrectly recorded, but Bhagavan said, Chidambaram is the famous place of pilgrimage associated with Nandana, who sang that uh, Atma Vidya is most difficult of attainment. Um, Murugana, a long-standing devotee, uh, began, however, uh, that Atma Vidya is very easy of attainment. Um, this is a very, this is obviously Bhagavan didn't say that because that is completely uh, inaccurate. Um, that is, uh, Nandana didn't sing that uh, Atma Vidya is difficult attainment. He didn't, what he sang about was nothing about Atma Vidya. He was saying it's very difficult being your slave because in the story, he, Though he was born in a um, as, as a pariah, as an outcast, he was a very, very great Shiva Bhakta. So he always wanted his his one uh, heartfelt desire was to go to Chidambaram to have darshanam or, or, of, uh, of Lord Shiva in Chidambaram. Um, but his his cruel uh, master, because he was a bonded laborer, a bonded laborer is more or less like a a slave, they're bound to serve uh, their master. So he couldn't go without permission. And whenever he asked permission to go, his uh, master gave him impossible tasks. If I remember correctly, I think after giving one impossible task after another, he finally said, okay, I will give you permission to go, provided that you sow the crop and harvest it overnight, all, all in one night, sow crop and harvest it, then I will allow you to go. So then Lord Shiva himself intervened. He sent his Shiva gunners 
to uh, come and assist uh, Nandana. So the Shiva Gunners planted the, the, the crop, the paddy, and uh, by the grace of Lord Shiva, it grew overnight and they harvested it. So the next morning, the, um, the cruel um, uh, uh, landowner, his master, was surprised to see the, the crop was all uh, had been harvested. Then only he relented and allowed um, Nandana to go to um, to go to Chidambaram. And when he went to Chidambaram, because of his great love for Lord Shiva, he I can't remember the exact detail, but I think in the end he merged into that is. Uh, Chidambaram is the Akasa Linga, it's the space Linga. So he merged into that space. That space means the space, the Chittagasa, Akasa. Chit, that's what Chidambaram means, the Chittakasa. So um, the space of pure awareness. So Nandana merged in that because of his great love for Lord Shiva. But, but in the story, the song he sang, or, or the particular song that Murugana um, modeled this song on, He's not saying anything about Atmavidya. He's saying about uh, how difficult it is being a slave to that uh, cruel uh, landowner. Um, uh, oh, and one other thing that is incorrectly recorded in that in that passage in talks, um, it it is uh, it is incorrectly implied that after composing the Pallavi and Anupallavi. Murugana could not pursue the theme further and laid the first four lines composed by him before Bhagavan for completion. Whereas, in fact, Murugana could very well have completed the song if he had wanted to, but he did not want to because he had composed the Pallavi and Anupallavi with the intention to ask Bhagavan to compose the Charanangal uh, so that he could affirm that Atma Vidya is extremely easy. Um, so uh, the, the Pallavi, as I said, the, the meaning of the Pallavi is Aye, well, the Pallavi is Aye Ati Solapum, Anma Videi Aye Ati Solapum. Aye, uh, as I said, it can mean, it can be an exclamation or it can mean sir, but in this context, obviously, it doesn't mean sir, it's an exclamation. So, ah, it means something to that effect. Uh, Ati Solapum. That means extremely easy. Anma Bidei Aye Atisulapum. Anma Bidei is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit term Atma Bidya, which means um, self knowledge or the science of self, because Vidya means knowledge in a broad sense that includes science, learning, philosophy, or any practical skill or art. In this context, we can interpret Anmavidya or Atmavidya to mean the art and science of self-knowledge. So the import of this Pallavi, and hence of this entire Kirtanam, is that knowing oneself is extremely easy. This is the Pallavi, but is repeated after every verse and after the Anupallavi. Then in the Anupallavi, Murugana wrote, Noya uh, Tamakum, uh, Ulunkai Amalakani Poya Oriya Mihu Mayai Uludu Anma. What that means is um, oneself exists as so very real, even for those who are simple minded, 
but an amalaka fruit on the uh, on the palm ends as unreal. Therefore, extremely easy is atmavidya. Uh, 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 um, there is an expression in Tamil, Ulankai Nelikani. Uh, Nelikani is, a, is uh, in Tamil, what is called Nelikani in Tamil is called Amalaka in Sanskrit. Um, and uh, I probably you, you all know Amalaka is a small grape sized fruit. So Ulankai um, Nelikani literally means palm Amalaka fruit. And it's, it's an expression that is used to describe anything that is as clear and certain as an amalaka fruit in the, in the palm of one's hand. That you've got a small, if you've got a small amalaka or grape-sized fruit in your palm of your hand, it's very clear and obvious. Um, so re referring to this, in this Anupalavi, Murugana implies but oneself, Atma, is so very clear, certain, and real that in comparison, even an Amalaka fruit in the palm of one's hand seems unclear, dubious, and unreal. That is, we can doubt the existence of anything other than ourselves. The one thing whose existence we can never doubt is our own existence. And there is nothing that is uh, as clear and indubitably real as our, our as our own existence and our awareness of our existence, I am. That is the implication. Since we are always so clearly aware of ourselves, knowing ourselves as we actually are cannot be difficult. If it seems difficult, that is because we do not yet want it strongly enough. And the reason we do not want it strongly enough is that in order to be aware of ourselves as we actually are, we must give up forever being aware of anything else. So to the extent that we have any desire for or attachment to anything other than ourselves, we do not wholeheartedly want to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. In other words, though we may have a certain degree of liking or love to know what we actually are, we are not yet willing to pay the price that must be paid for it. And the need for us to give up being aware of anything else in order to know ourselves as we actually are is explained by Bhagavan in the verses, in the Charanangal of this song. Um, so what Bhagavan says in the... Um, in the uh, first of the Charanangal, verse one, um, he says, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll split it into sentences because it's, it's quite a long verse. Um, in the first sentence, he says, Mayai nirantaram tan ayadu irendidavum hoyam udumbu ulahu maya mulaitu erum. What that means is, um, though oneself exists incessantly and indubitably, indubitably as real, uh, the body and world, which are unreal, arise sprouting as real. Um, I'll, I'll explain the meaning more uh, in more detail afterwards. I'll first go through the meaning of the whole song. So that's the first verse. Though oneself exists incessantly and indubitably as real, the body and world, which are unreal, arise sprouting as real. That is, they appear to be real, though they're actually unreal. 
And then in the next sentence, he says, Poi mei, poi mai a nenevu, anuvum viadu, um, sorry, uh, anuvum viadu uh, odu kidave, mei a uh, idea belly, veyon uh, swayam atma vilangume. That means um, when unreal uh, darkness pervaded thought, is dissolved without rising even an iota in the reality uh, pervaded um, heart space, oneself, the sun, will certainly shine by oneself. What that implies is um, when thought, which is pervaded by or full of unreal darkness, uh, implying the darkness of self-ignorance, namely ego, which is the cause for the appearance of body and world, is dissolved without reviving even an iota. In other words, when it is dissolved in such a manner that it does not ever revive even an iota, in the heart space, which alone is real, oneself, who is the son of pure awareness, he Bhagavan just says Vayom, Vayom means son, but it implies the son of pure awareness, um, will certainly shine by oneself or spont Swayam means by oneself or spontaneously or of one's own accord. And then he concludes the verse saying, Irul Adangume, darkness will cease. That implies the darkness of self-ignorance in the form of ego will cease. Uh, Ida Odungume, suffering will end. Imbum Pongume, uh, happiness will surge forth. That in all these verses, he ends by emphasizing the happiness will surge forth. If we remove all the obstacles and the light of pure awareness shines forth, all misery will come to an end and happiness will be ours. So um, uh, there's a lot of meaning, uh, a lot of implication in this um in this uh in the Bhagavan has packed into this song that is he begins in the first sentence he begins by affirming what Murugana wrote in the Anupalavi namely that we ourselves always exist and are indubitably real even the most simple-minded person is clearly aware of his or her own existence I am some philosophers confuse themselves so much with their convoluted reasoning that they may doubt or even deny the existence of any such thing as self or I. But even a little clear reflection will show the absurdity of such a view, because in order to doubt or deny the existence of ourself, we must exist. Not only do we exist, but our existence and awareness of our existence are indubitably real. Everything else we are aware of could be an illusory appearance and hence unreal. But we ourselves must be real because an illusion is a misperception. So it can appear or seem to exist only in the view of a perceiving awareness. So without awareness, in the sense of something that is aware, there could be no illusion. Therefore, though everything perceived by awareness could be an illusion, awareness itself cannot be an illusion, because it certainly exists and must therefore be real. 
Hence, since we ourselves are what is aware, we certainly exist and must therefore be real. That is, we can doubt the existence of everything else. We can say, oh, it's just a, a mere appearance. But our own existence cannot be a mere appearance, because to whom does it appear? It appears to me. So it must be, it, it, we must exist in order to um, be aware of anything, uh, either our own existence or the existence of anything else. We may not be whatever we seem to be, and hence whatever we seem to be may be unreal. But if we remove all that is unreal, the fundamental awareness that alone remains is what we actually are. And that most and that is most certainly real, because it is the ultimate foundation upon which without which nothing else could appear or seem real. That is, uh, our fundamental awareness, which is what always shines clearly within us as our own existence, I am, is the light that illumines our mind, enabling it to know all other things. So though our mind and everything known by it may be unreal, the fundamental awareness that we actually are is indubitably real. This is why Bhagavan says in the first clause of this verse, may I nirantaram tan ayadu irindidavum. Though oneself always exists as indubitably as real, what he implies here by the adverbial uh, may I, which means being real, as real, or really, is that we do not merely seem to exist, but actually exist. That is, whenever he uses terms that mean real, such as may, or terms that mean unreal or false, such as poi, what he means by real is what actually exists, whereas what he means by poi is what does not actually exist, even if even if it seems to exist. Um, that is, the terms real and unreal are used a lot. I mean, we all use these terms, real and unreal. They're used a lot in philosophy, but what actually is real? What actually exists alone is real. What doesn't actually exist but merely seems to exist is unreal. That's the sense in which real and unreal are used in Vedanta, the terms real and unreal are used in Vedanta and in Bhagavan's teachings. As he says in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana, Yatatamai Ulladu Atma Sarupamondre. What actually exists is only Atmasarupa, the real nature of oneself. What he implies by this is that nothing other than ourself actually exists. So all other things are just an illusory appearance. Though they seem to exist, they do not actually exist. So they are all unreal. What is real is only ourself, because we alone are what actually exists. In this first clause, May I nirantaram tan ayadu irindiravum, though oneself always exists indubitably as real, besides may I as real or really, there are two other adverbials, namely nirantaram and either ayadu or nayadu, depending on how tan ayadu, which is a coalescence of two words, is split. 
Nirantaram is a Sanskrit word but means without interval, uninterrupted, continuous or constant. And in this context, it is used adverbially. So it means uninterruptedly, incessantly, continuously, constantly, always or eternally. Everything other than ourselves, including ego or mind, appears and disappears in our awareness. But whether other things appear or disappear, we remain constantly at the background awareness in which they appear and disappear. So there's never a moment when we do not exist or when we are not aware of our existence. In Tamil poetry, words coalesce euphonically, but are then uh, uh, split according to the metrical feet. So the first task when interpreting a verse is to decide how to separate the words, a process called padachetam. Uh, padachetam uh, means word separation. But there are sometimes alternative ways of doing so that are appropriate, which is one reason why some Tamil verses can be interpreted in more than one way. In this uh, sentence, Tanayadu can be split either as Tan Ayadu or Tan Nayadu, in which Tan means oneself. Ayadu is a negative adverbial participle, but literally means not doubting or without doubting. And in this context, it implies indubitably or certainly, because the fact that we exist as the fundamental awareness I am cannot reasonably be doubted by anyone. The alternative word, nayadu, is likewise a negative adverbial participle, and it means not perishing or without perishing, without perishing. So in this context, it means imperishably, because we exist not only eternally and therefore without a break, but also immutably and therefore without ever changing in any way whatsoever. When we mistake ourselves to be anything that appears and disappears, we seem to undergo change, but what we actually are never mistakes itself to be anything. So as such, we remain untouched by the appearance of any change, and hence we are imperishable. Um, one reason why some philosophers doubt or even deny that there is any such thing as self is due to a simple misunderstanding of the meaning of this term. And as a result of that misunderstanding, they reify self and talk about the self, or worse still, the self with a capital S, as if it were a thing in its own right. The fallacy of such a view can be understood by considering whether anything can be other than itself. Are a table and itself two different things? Are you and yourself two different things? Am I and myself two different things? No, obviously not. So there's no such thing as a self other than the thing whose self it is. Everything is itself and nothing has any self that is other than itself. Therefore, when philosophers deny that there is any such thing as self, they are in, in effect denying that there's anything at all which is obviously absurd, because there clearly is something, and that something is itself. The question is not whether there is something, but what is the, what is the thing that actually exists? That is the question philosophers should be asking. Um, 
Therefore, though the term self is often used as a noun, it would be more accurate and helpful to consider it to be a pronoun and to use it accordingly, because a noun identifies a particular thing or kind of thing. So it has a meaning independent of the context in which it is used. Whereas self on its own does not identify any particular thing or kind of thing. Like the meaning of any other pronoun, the meaning of self is determined by the context in which it is used. So without context, it does not mean anything, which is why in English it is generally used as part of a compound, such as oneself, myself, yourself, herself, himself, itself, or, or more rarely ourself. Unless it is used in any context that uh, indicates otherwise, when self is used on its own, it generally implies oneself or myself. And this is the sense in which the Sanskrit term Atman and the Tamil term Tan are generally used in spiritual, in a spiritual or philosophical context. Therefore, when Murugana um, says in the Anupalavi, Noya Tamakum Mikamei Uludu Atma, Anma, Anma is a Tamil form of Atma. Um, uh, uh, um, which means oneself exists as so very real, even for those who are simple-minded. And when Bhagavan says in this verse, may I nirantaram tan ayadu irendidavum, though oneself always exists indubitably as real, what they mean by atma or uh, tan is only oneself and not anything, not any other thing called the self. In other words, what they mean is simply that for each one of us, we ourselves are always indubitably, indubitably real and clearly known. Um, that is, I'll just say one thing here. Generally, the Sanskrit term Atman is translated in English as the self, but this is this is not actually a very helpful translation because when in English, if you in Sanskrit and Tamil and Indian languages generally, there are no definite articles. But in English, when we use the definite article, we re, we we make the word into a noun. So if we say the self, we are making we're interpreting Atman as a noun. A noun refers to a specific thing, but Atman, we shouldn't understand the term Atman as a noun. We should understand it as a pronoun. And that's how it's used in Sanskrit. Atman, depending on the context, it doesn't always refer to ourself. In certain contexts, it can refer to itself or himself or herself. We, it, it, it depends on the context what it refers to. So, Transfer, uh, translating Atman or the Tamil word equivalent Tamil term Tan as the self is misleading. Likewise, the term Swarupa is also often translated as the self. Swarupa means our own real nature. That means our self as we actually are. So um, rather than translating Atman as, uh, as the self, it's better generally to translate it as oneself uh, in most contexts. But of course, it depends on the context because uh, what exactly it's referring to. So, for example, the Mahavakya 
in uh, I think it's in the Mandukya Upanishad. Uh, I am Atma Brahman. That is, this this self is Brahman. This self is referring to uh, it, what it implies is I myself. It's not referring to a thing called the self. It's referring to to what self. To myself, to this self, this, this very self. It's it, that the aim of the Mahavakyas is to emphasize that we ourselves are Brahman. Tatvamasi, you are that. Uh, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Uh, uh, I am Atma Brahman. This very self is Brahman. Pragnanam Brahman, the awareness, the awareness that we sh shining within us as I. That is Brahman. That is the idea of the Mahavakyas. Um, so rather than translating uh, atma as the self, it's better to translate it as oneself. Um, if we ourselves did not exist, we could not be we could not be aware of our own existence, nor could we be aware of the semi-existence of anything else. So the fact that we are aware is conclusive proof of our own existence as awareness. Awareness, in the sense of what is aware, certainly does exist, um, because its existence is self-shining, swayam prakasa, which means that it knows itself by its own light of awareness. Whatever is not aware does not actually exist, because it seems to exist only in the view of something that is aware. So its semi-existence depends upon the existence or semi-existence of whatever is aware of its semi-existence. Whatever actually exists must exist independent of all other things, which means that it must be aware of its own existence. In other words, it must be swayam prakasha, it must be self-shining. Therefore, since we are aware of our own existence, we must actually exist, and therefore the existence of ourself must be real. Um, as I explained earlier, in the first clause of this uh, uh, verse, tan ayadu can be split in either of two ways. Either as tan ayadu, which means oneself indubitably, or tan nayadu, which means oneself imperishably. If we take this latter option, this sentence becomes mayai nirantaram tan nayadu irindiravam. Um, or this clause, rather, which means, though oneself always exists imperishably as real. What this implies, particularly when read along with the second half of this sentence, is that even when a body and world appear and seem to be real, the reality of oneself does not perish um, and is in no way diminished. That is, even when we're aware of ourselves as a body and are consequently aware of a world, the clarity of our fundamental self-awareness does not perish. This is the case from the perspective both of ourself as we actually are and of ourself as ego. What we actually are, which is what Bhagavan calls Atmaswarupa, the real nature of oneself, is pure awareness, which means awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. And since it is immutable, it never undergoes change of any kind whatsoever. So it is always clearly aware of itself as it actually is, and is never aware of anything else. And hence, it, in its clear view, no body or world ever seem to uh, ever appear. 
it is only in the view of ourself as ego, therefore, that a body and world appear and seem to be real. However, even when we rise as ego and are consequently aware of the appearance of the body and world, we never cease to be clearly aware of ourself as I am. Because this awareness I am is our fundamental awareness and the foundation or screen on which ego and its awareness of all other things appear and disappear. Because we are so interested in being aware of other things, we tend to overlook our fundamental awareness of our own existence, I am. But even when we overlook it, it is still existing and shining clearly within us as our own reality. And it is what we always actually are. So we never cease to be aware of it. Therefore, if we want to be aware of ourselves as we actually are, we can always attend to ourselves, and it is never difficult to do so. If it seems difficult, that is only because we do not have sufficient love to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. The more we practice being self-attentive, the clearer it will become to us that what we always that that we are always clearly aware of ourselves, and the more love. Uh, more our love to be aware of ourselves as we actually are will increase in depth and intensity. Therefore, the practical implication of this uh, uh, first clause, may I nirantaram tan ayadu irindiravum, though oneself always exists indutably or imperishably as real, is that we always exist so clearly as I am is that since we always exist so clearly as I am, attending to ourself in order to see what we actually are is extremely easy. And that when we strengthen our love to know what we actually are by persistently trying to be self-attentive, we will find that being self-attentive is easier than doing anything else at all, as Bhagavan goes on to uh, emphasize in later verses. Um, since we are always clearly aware of ourselves as I am, we all know ourselves already. So this is why Bhagavan often used to say that self-knowledge or Atmanyana is not a knowledge that is now absent or, or, or that is ever absent and that we therefore need to gain anew. The problem is that though we always know ourselves, in the sense that we are always aware of ourselves, we, are, we always know our own existence, we now know ourselves as something other than what we actually are, because we mistake ourselves to be a person consisting of five she's, namely a physical body, life, mind, intellect, and will. This person is not what we actually are, because we are aware of ourselves as I am in waking, dream, and sleep, but we are aware of ourselves as a person only in waking and dream. If this person were actually ourself, we could not be aware of ourselves without being aware of this person. But we are aware of ourselves in sleep without being aware of any person at all. A person is a body, but not a dead body, because only a body that is alive is considered to be a person. And we are never aware of ourselves as a dead body. Even a sleeping body or a body in coma is not exactly a person, because what constitutes a person is not only a body and life, but also mind, intellect, and will. 
So though from an onlooker's perspective, the body of a sleeping person seems to be present, the person themselves seems to be absent. These five elements or sheaves, namely body, uh, life, mind, intellect, and will, make up whatever person we seem to be. And we are never aware of ourselves as any of these sheaves without being aware of ourselves of all five, all five of them. This is why Bhagavan says in uh, verse 5 of Uludunapadu, Udu Panchakosa Uru, the body is a form of five sheaves. Adalal Aindum Udulenum Solil Odongam. Therefore, all five are included in the term body. That is, whenever Bhagavan talks about ego as being the false awareness, I am this body, what he means by body is not just the physical form, but all the five sheaths. Udalandri uh, Undo Ulahom. Without a body, is there a world? Udalvitu Ulahate Kanda Ularo Kararu. Say, leaving the body, is there anyone who has seen a, a world? That is, we, whenever we're aware of the world, we're always aware of ourselves as a body within that world. Therefore, when he says that ego is the false awareness, I am this body, what he means by body is not just the physical form, but the entire person consisting of body, life, in the sense of all the physiological processes that animate the body, like the pranamaya kosha, mind, intellect, and will. The mind is the manamaya kosha, intellect is what is called vijnanamaya uh, kosha, and the will is the will or chittam is the anandamaya kosha. Uh, because these five form an inseparable set uh, whenever we mistake ourselves to be a body. Moreover, whenever we are aware of ourselves as if we were a body consisting of these five sheaves, we are also aware of a world of which that, that body is a part. And whenever we are not aware of ourselves as a body, we are not aware of any world. So in the uh, last half of, uh, of this verse, Vuludunapitu, he asks rhetorically, Udalandri uh, Undo Ulahum. That means without a body, is there a world? Udalvitu Ulahate Kanda Ularo. Say, leaving the body, is there anyone who has seen a world? When we mistake ourselves to be a body, we're obviously aware of ourselves, uh, but not as we actually are. Therefore, in order to be aware of ourselves as we actually are, we need to remove this false awareness, I am this body. This is why Bhagavan often said that what is required is not to gain self-knowledge, but to get rid of wrong the wrong knowledge, I am this body. Because self-knowledge is nothing other than our ever-present self-awareness, which exists and shines as I am, whether we are aware of ourselves as we actually are or as a body. True self-knowledge, atma-vidya or atmanyana, is only this simple awareness of our own existence, I am, bereft of all adjuncts. But this, is, this simple awareness is obscured though of course not hidden by ego, which is the false adjunct-conflated awareness, I am this body. Uh, 
whenever we are aware of ourselves as a body, we are also aware of a world of which that body is a part. And likewise, whenever we're aware of any world, we are also aware of ourselves as a body in that world. Therefore, awareness of any world and awareness of ourselves as a body are inseparable, as Bhagavan implies in the final two sentences of the above verse of verse, but cited verse five of Uludanapatu. In fact, uh, we are never aware of anything other than ourselves except when we are aware of ourselves as I am this body. So we cannot eradicate this false awareness, I am this body, without thereby ceasing to be aware of anything other than ourselves. This is why Bhagavan says in the first sentence of this first verse of Amabhidde, Meyai nirantaram tanayadu irindaravum hoyam udumbu ulahum meyai mulaitu erum. Though oneself always exists indubitably, indubitably as real, the body and world which are unreal arise sprouting as if real, thereby indicating that it is the appearance of the body and world which are both unreal but prevents us being aware of ourselves as we actually are. When he says that the body and world are unreal, what he means by poi, unreal, is that they do not actually exist, even though they seem to exist. What is may real is only ourself, as he says in the first sentence of um, verse 13 of Ulzunaptun, jnana mam tane may, oneself who is jnana, pure awareness, alone is real, because we alone are what actually exists. Um, uh, since we alone are what is real, the body and world are unreal. But whenever they appear, they seem to be real, as he implies by saying, Poyam Udumbu Uluhu Mayai Muletu Erum. The body and world, which are unreal, arise sprouting as if real. So why do they seem to be real? Only because they seem to exist in the view of ourself as ego, and as ego, we're always aware of ourselves as I am this body. Since we ourselves are real, uh, and since the body seems to be ourself, it seems to be as real as we are. And since the body is just a small part of a seemingly vast world, the body cannot be real without the entire world being equally real. So the world seems to be real. So the world seems to be as real as the body. Therefore, by rising as ego and consequently mistaking ourselves to be a, a body, we superimpose the reality of ourselves on the body and consequently on the entire world. Whenever we dream, we dream that we are a body in that dream. So the dream body seems to be as real as we are. And the dream world seems to be as real as the dream body. This is why whatever we experience in a dream seems to be real so long as we are dreaming that dream. While we are dreaming, our dream body and the dream world seem to be as real as our present body and this present world now seem to be. The body and world that we currently experience seem to be real now for exactly the same reason that the body and world that we experience in a dream seem to be real. So as long as we are dreaming that dream, 
so, so long as we are dreaming that dream. So if we carefully consider the, the similarity of our present experience with our experience in dream, it is clear that we have no adequate reason to suppose that our present experience is anything other than a dream. There is nothing that we experience now that we could not equally well experience in a dream. And whatever we experience while dreaming seems at that time to be as real as whatever we experience in this present state now seems to be. So our experience does not provide us with any evidence whatsoever that our present state is not just another dream. Therefore, it is reasonable for us to conclude that any state in which we experience ourselves as I am this body, in which this body refers to whatever body we then mistake ourselves to be, and consequently experience a world, is just a dream, and that whatever body and world we experience in any such state is as unreal as whatever body and world we experience in a dream, even though they seem to be real so long as we're experiencing them. Though whatever body and world we experience in a dream uh, seem to be real so long as we are dreaming that dream, as soon as we leave one dream and come to another dream, we instantly recognize that our previous state was just a dream, and that the body and world that we experienced in that previous state were therefore not real. While we are dreaming, we are aware of the dream body as I am this body, so it seems to be real, and consequently the entire dream world seems to be real. But as soon as we cease dreaming that dream, we cease being aware of that dream body as I am this body, so it no longer seems real, and consequently the entire dream world no longer seems to be real. An objection could be raised here, but if our present state, which we now take to be our waking state, is actually just a dream, then it is not true to uh, say that as soon as we leave one dream and come to another dream, we instantly recognize that our previous state was just a dream. Because when we fall asleep and begin dreaming, we do not instantly recognize this waking state was just a dream. However, this objection is not valid because when we fall asleep and begin dreaming, we have not actually left this dream that we now take to be our waking state, since the dreams we have while sleeping are dreams that occur within the dream that we call our present waking life. That is, our entire life as this present body is one long dream. And within this dream, we fall asleep every day and our sleep is interrupted by periods of dream. So those dreams are dreams that occur within this dream. We will leave this dream of our present life only when this life comes to an end. And if we remember this dream in our next dream, then we will recognize that the body and world of this dream were not real. Sometimes after death, we may experience a dream in which we remember this dream of our life, uh, this body, such as a dream in which we may dream ourselves to be in some sort of a heavenly afterlife. We would recognize that our entire life of this body was just a dream. However, such a dream is only a transitional state, so it will generally not last long. And once it ends, or even before it ends, all memory of our present life will fade away. 
So when our next dream starts, we will not remember this or any of our previous dreams. That's why generally we've got no memory of our previous lives. Since the dreams that interrupt our sleep are dreams within the dream of our present life, they are sub-dreams. So while we are dreaming them, we experience them as if they were a continuity of our present life, and hence we seem to be the same person. Though the body that we experience as ourself is not the same body that we now experience as ourself, it seems to be the same body. Because we who dream that sub-dream are the same ego who is now dreaming this dream. Whenever we are dreaming such a sub-dream, we dream that we are awake, and to a greater or lesser extent, we remember our past experiences in this dream of our present life. So our identity in each sub-dream is the same as our identity of the, in the dream of which that sub-dream is a part. However, though those sub-dreams are dreams that occur within this dream of our present life, this dream is no more real than any of them. What is real is only our self as pure awareness. I am. So everything else is unreal. Other things seem to be real because we're now aware of ourselves as I am this body. This body is a form composed of five sheaths. So since this bundle of five sheaths now seems to be I, and since I is real, this entire bundle seems to be real, and each of its components seem to be real. The grossest of its components is the physical body, the Anamaya Kosha, and the physiological processes that animate it, the Pranamaya Kosha. And since these physical components seem to be a part of a physical world, the entire physical world seems to be real. The subtlest of its components are the mind, Manamaya Kosha, intellect, Vijnanamaya Kosha, and will, Anandamaya Kosha. And since these constitute an inner world of perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, emotions, intellectual processes such as discerning, discriminating, intuiting, judging, reasoning, calculating, and understanding, and vasanas, volitional inclinations, which are the seed that sprout as likes, dislikes, desires, aversions, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. This entire internal world seems to be real. These two worlds, namely the internal world of mental phenomena and the external world of physical phenomena, are inseparable from the body composed of five sheaths. And just as these five sheaths are what Bhagavan generally referred to collectively as the body, these two worlds are what he generally referred to collectively as the world. Therefore, the reason why the entire world, meaning both the internal and external world, seem to be real is that we have risen as ego, whose nature is to be always aware of itself as I am this body. When we are not aware of ourselves as I am this body, as in sleep, nothing other than us our self as the fundamental awareness I am seems to exist. But whenever we are aware of ourself as I am this body, other things seem to exist and to be real. And those other things are what constitute the body and world. Everything other than ourself is a form of one kind or another. 
So forms of all kind, both physical and both physical forms and mental forms, seem to exist only when we mistake ourselves to be a body, as Bhagavan implies in the first three sentences of verse four of Uludunapadu. What he says in that verse four is, "Uruvum tanayin uluhu paramatran." If one self is a form, the world and God will be likewise. Uruvum tan andrel uvatrin uruvate kan urudal yabon eban. If if one self is not a form, who can see their forms? How? I mean, how to do so? Uh, no forms actually exist because they uh, because they seem to exist only in the view of ego, which itself does not actually exist, but merely seems to exist in its own view. So they are all entirely unreal. However, when we whenever we rise and stand as ego, we experience ourselves as a body, which is a form composed of five sheaths. So this form seems to be real. And hence, all the other forms which constitute the world, both the internal and the external worlds, also seem to be real. Um, I've, I've now been talking for an hour. I think my time is up. That is, Bhagavan has packed so much meaning into this first verse, as into every verse in this song. Um, it may take me more than a full session to reply to explain each verse. So um, I think perhaps I should um, I should uh, stop it here. I've explained the first sentence of this verse, and um, next month I will continue to explain the the second verse because they're, they're, all these are very closely interwoven ideas. And as I say, Bhagavan has packed a lot. Not only a lot of meaning into this verse, but a lot of implication. So to do justice to it, I won't try and rush it. I will continue explaining this first verse in the uh, next month. Namo Ramana, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, right. thank